the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really good to have you with us. And Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by someone we've had on the show before, Dr. Katie Butler. Katie is the author of a new article at the Gospel Coalition entitled How the Church Can Help in Suicide Prevention. Katie, it's really great to have you back on the show. How are you doing? I'm I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. It's an honor. No, it's really our pleasure to have you back on. Uh, for people who didn't hear you last time you were on, why don't you reintroduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit better? Sure. My name's Katie Butler. I am a trauma surgeon turned writer and homeschooling mom. I left practice in 2016 to homeschool my kids after working for about 10 years in the field of trauma and critical care surgery at Mass General Hospital. And we live in the woods in Boston and explore books. And when I have a chance, I write articles and books on issues where medicine and faith intersect. Oh, that's awesome, Katie. We loved having you on before. We're so glad that you're with us again today. All the way back in May, you wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition called How the Church Can Help in Suicide Prevention. And we thought it'd be great to have you on because September is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. And um, I, I, I think maybe I'll just pose the question to you broadly, Katie, as a doctor um, and then as a practitioner of your faith as well. How can the church help in suicide prevention? Yeah, it's such a hard issue. You know, I should preface it, too, by saying that the incidence of suicide is actually increasing. Mm. It's gone up by about a third over the last two decades. Mm. It's been seen in greater incidence and prevalence among underserved communities since COVID hit. So there's been uh, this ongoing concern that with the isolation, we would all suffer from more mental health issues. And that's that definitely been true among the um, Hispanic and African American populations that were really hardest hit by COVID. Uh, you know, so it's something that the church should be alert to first and foremost, as those of us seeking to love neighbor mm-hmm. and to love one another as ourselves, you know, as Jesus loved us. Uh, but it's an area that oftentimes, as much as we would want to be loving to those in our midst, we often fall short. Um, there was a Lifeway study done back in 2017, and they interviewed a thousand pastors and a thousand Protestant, um, non-denominational church Christian churchgoers, and they were asking about this issue of suicide. And of the church members, a third of them reported that they had had a loved one die due to suicide. Mm. A third of those victims who had passed away by suicide uh, attended church. But these respondents said that only in 4% of cases did church leaders know about what had been going on. Mm. And additionally, I think there's still a very strong stigma for those who die by suicide and against the families thereafter. Um, 50% of people said that the most common response they expected from their communities or experience was actually gossip after the fact, rather than support and help. Um, You know, but when you think about it, we're really very well poised as people trying to walk with others in love to 
intervene and help um, during moments when people are struggling with thoughts of ending their lives. And so um, I wanted just to give a, a few guidelines that I give in the article. If, if you, I may about please, please. ways that we can help, you know, and, and first of all, you know, I think the the number one thing we need to do is to just more um, globally speaking is stay connected with one another. It's actually been shown that social, social isolation in itself is a risk factor for death by suicide. When people are connected with others, they are less likely to feel that life doesn't have any meaning and more likely to look for help. Um, so the number one thing we can do as brothers and sisters is to be involved in people's lives so we, that we can detect when people are struggling. Um, if you are involved in someone's life, things to do to recognize that there's a problem. There are a number of warning signs. 90% of people who die by suicide have an underlying mental health condition. Hmm. So depression, bipolar disorder, this whole array of, of mental health diagnoses that you see. So that number one is a huge risk factor. But there are also some things that you can see if you know someone well enough that are concerning about their behavior or their mood that might raise a red flag for you. Some of them is if they're suddenly become very socially withdrawn after normally having a rich life of fellowship with others. If their hygiene starts to suffer. Um, if you find that they're becoming more and more disorganized and that just the basic things of life are becoming hard, their mood, if they uh, condone depressed feelings that are getting worse and worse, and if they actually start to speak about death, those are all reasons to be concerned. Hmm. Now, if you have those concerns, it's really important to actually have a conversation uh, because so often people will worry. And so I don't want to bring up the idea of suicide because what if I put it in his, in my, this person's head? And what we've seen through research is that actually doesn't happen. That if someone is, is suffering so deeply that the idea of taking his or her own life seems the best alternative to living because living is so much suffering. When someone actually reaches out and talks to them about it, it actually gives them a sense of relief. Hmm. Uh, and it doesn't put the idea in their head. <laughs> um, so have a conversation, do it lovingly, um, ask and be pointed and use the word suicide or hurting yourself or taking your own life, be explicit. And in that conversation, it's really important to practice the ministry of presence, wow, meaning so not giving advice, not passing judgment statements, not telling them how they should feel, but listen. Mm. If during that conversation, it becomes clear that someone is potentially having thoughts of suicide, the most important thing to do is determine the severity of the crisis. Mm -hmm. and, and the ways to do that are to figure out if the person with whom you're speaking has a plan to kill themselves, if they have the means to do it, and if they have the intent. Mm -hmm. Someone might make a passive suicidal statement, something like, I just want to go to sleep and never wake up. I just wish life could end. Hmm. Those things are concerning and that person needs help and you should help get them to a healthcare professional, but it's not as urgent or emergent as someone who says, yes, I've been thinking of jumping off the bridge and I know exactly where I'd go. And I've been thinking I might do it sometime this week, you know, different situations. In the first case, you want to try to get somebody help expediently. But in the second case, you do not want to leave that person alone. And and those are the cases when it's 
best and most prudent to actually escort him or her to the emergency room Mm. or to some other healthcare professional and stay with them or to call the suicide prevention hotline, which you can call and have guidance about where to go next. But you never, ever, if someone actually is condoning that they want to take their own life and they have thought about a way to do it and they plan to do it, don't leave that person alone. Stay Mm. with them and get them help. And then once you've done that, we've actually found through research that you can save life if while they're getting help, you take away the means to kill themselves. Mm. And the most common means is a firearm. And if you know they have a firearm in their house, try to see if you can get that gun removed. Uh, but, you know, it's, it, I think the, the key thing is to just be involved with people, to not be afraid of having conversations, and then to walk alongside and stay with someone when mm. these conversations unveil that, yes, there is a problem. Oh, Katie, that is so helpful. Again, Dr. Katie Butler, uh, trauma and critical care surgeon, also writes at Desire and God and uh, this article, The Gospel Coalition, How the Church Can Help in Suicide Prevention. It's such an important topic, one that churches don't talk a lot about. I've got three, almost three teenagers in the house. My my youngest is like 12 going on 16 right now, you know, so uh, <laughs> I have a bunch of teenagers. And so as parents, we always read that the risk of suicide and suicidal ideations in teenagers is a a lot higher. And, And I'm wondering, is that correct? And if so, what advice would you give to us as parents? Are there unique warning signs when it comes to teenagers that even might be different or unique things you would say uh, in, in how to talk to our kids or what to watch out for? Help us understand the life of a teenager as it, as it uh, relates to suicide. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, It is the second leading cause of death among people aged 10 to 34. Hmm. And so it's young adults are at the highest risk of succumbing to suicide. Um, And, you know, while the the pressures that adolescents are facing are unique, especially in terms of social media being so front and central and uh, bullying being completely out of control in terms of cyberbullying, you know, I mean, when when you and I were growing up, you were somewhat sheltered when you got off the school bus and were home, you know, but these days there is no escape uh, because it's just relentless in terms of what kids are being subjected to over text and over Facebook. And it's just constant. So there's very little relief. However, I would say the the warning signs are the same. It's going Mm -hmm. to be um, withdrawal, worsening depressed mood. And then if they start to actually speak about death and, With teenagers, it's harder because oftentimes they tend to withdraw from their parents just developmentally as they're trying to determine their own independence and exert that. Um, So I I think that the best thing is just to try to remain as much a part of your teenager's life as possible and make sure that you've got that kind of relationship where there's an open door. Mm. Um, And if you are seriously concerned about his or her behavior that you not be afraid to seek professional help for him Mm -hmm. and go with him or her to a counselor, Mm -hmm. to a healthcare professional where there can be a conversation in private with someone who's a third party uh, so that they can open up and admit what they're feeling. 
Hmm. That's, that's a good word for all parents, Katie. One of the things that you've just talked about now and talked about in our earlier conversation with you, the importance of having a conversation with someone who you think might be considering suicide. And I know that that probably feels very intimidating to our listeners. Okay, wow, you're mentioning these warning signs. I'm thinking I'm seeing them in my friend or my child. Uh, I'm scared to have that conversation. What if it puts the idea in their heads or, or what if it offends them? Give us some very practical advice, maybe even some scripts. Like what are words we can say if we feel like we need to have a conversation with someone uh, who's possibly considering suicide? Sure, sure. First of all, I would say if you don't have a very strong relationship with this person, or if you think it's going to be poorly received by this person, it's absolutely fine too to seek out a pastor that you know knows this church member well, um, or another loved one, you know, and, and start it that way. But if you're having sitting down and having one of these conversations, I would start by choose, first of all, a time and a place where you're not going to be rushed <laughs> so that you can mm. take your time and, and sit down and say, you know, how are you doing? And if they give you the pat answer, because that's usually what we all do initially <laughs> when you ask, right, how are right. you? Mm-hmm. And pause and say, no, how are you really? And you can list what you've noticed. And it's mm-hmm. not being judgmental. It's saying, you know, I've just noticed you seem so down lately. And, you know, I'm, I'm concerned for you because I love you. And, and just listen and point out what you notice and then just be very patient for the reply. Um, but I think our tendency sometimes is to say, how are you doing? And if somebody brush- gives you a brush off answer, we don't want to pursue it. Mm. Uh, with this, it's serious enough that I think it's important to sit down, make sure it's a quiet space and a safe space and press and show and ex- mention what you're worried about. That's great. Again, uh, Katie, I was going to ask you about your Desiring God article, but I want to ask you one more question about suicide. So what I want people to do is go to DesiringGod.org uh, and you could check out an article that uh, Katie just put out this past week called The Rest Beyond Our Reach, Finding Refreshment in a Burnout Culture. Uh, it'll be well worth your time. I think a lot of us are feeling burnt out and need of rest. But Katie, let me ask you this. Aubrey and I are both pastors, and so I figured we'd end this way. What would you suggest to pastors, to church leaders out there uh, to make this more of a conversation that's even able to happen within their churches where people don't feel like they need to hide in the shadows and in the corners, but where churches instead become welcoming places for people to talk about mental health, to talk about suicide? Uh, Are there some steps that we as church leaders and pastors could be taking to kind of change the DNA and the narrative of our churches around this topic? Absolutely. One thing that I would say uh, that I've observed and actually read about through the few studies that have looked at this is that there tends to still be a pervasive stigma against uh, mental illness within the church. And in particular, it's very common for us who follow Christ to say, well, if I follow Jesus, I shouldn't have depression. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't be struggling with this because I know that I'm saved. So why is this still an issue? And so given that thinking we tend to cloister. And I say this and I'm using the the first person because I've struggled with depression and suicidal ideation myself in the past. Mm. And so we tend to want to shield ourselves and not admit when we're struggling. Mm -hmm. If there could be through the church, either through education or even up during sermons to recognize that depression is suffering. And and as followers of Christ, we have a hope that we cling to in Christ and we know that Christ has overcome death, but that doesn't mean that in the here and, and now, this side of the fall, before Christ returns, we're still not going to endure suffering. And it's right. not 
an issue of being a bad Christian or not having enough faith. It's because we're still living in a sinful world. Mm. You know, and I think trying to normalize and help people understand that, that you, that it, that depression and faith can coexist and do coexist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think would be helpful to try to create more of a comfortable space for people where they can talk about it. And I would add to support for those who are the survivors, mm-hmm. meaning those whose loved ones have died from suicide, yeah. um, I think can be also really key because there's so much guilt and shame um, that can be built into this in the aftermath and just addressing it openly and trying to create a culture in the church of coming around those who remain after this kind of tragedy in love yeah, um, and help walk with them through the grief that follows. Oh, that's a great word for all of us, Katie. Thanks so much for that. How can our listeners connect with you, find more of your books, your writing, your ministry, um, all things Dr. Katie Butler? Yeah, sure. So my my blog is um, oceansrisesite.blog. And you can connect with my most recent writing I have there. And um, additionally, my books are out of Crossway. So if you go onto Crossway's website, um, you can find a list of them there. Great. Katie, this was so helpful. A difficult topic, but one that the church needs to be stepping into. Again, I'd encourage people, go to Desiring God to see Katie's most recent article. Also, the one we've been talking about today is over at the Gospel Coalition. Katie Butler, again, uh, thanks so much for your time. It's been wonderful having you with us. Thank you. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we are so glad you're with us today. We are at Common Good Talk on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and we love connecting with you there. Okay, Brian, speaking of social media, I have been on social media a lot, especially (laughs) over the past month because I have been in major book promotion mode for my book, Known, How Believing Who God Says You Are Changes Everything. And it is like every day I am sharing an article or doing a giveaway or promoting a picture. Just I am like sharing an interview. I am social media present at the moment, which is part of how you sell books in this day and age, since there are so many bookstores that are closed. Um, sometimes it makes me want to throw my hands up and walk away from social media altogether. Sometimes I actually really enjoy it because it's fun to engage with readers and with new people. What about you? Have you ever had a season where you're like, I'm done, I'm out, I'm going to walk away from social media? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I guess, A, did you do it for a time? I'm kind of not on Facebook at the moment. I am, oh, so I don't okay. want to be like, oh, I'm not on Facebook. I'm yeah. that guy. But I'm I'm on Facebook significantly less. I've put up, I unfollowed, like not unfollowed, I so they can't tell that you're not, yeah, unfollowed. I unfollowed like 95% of the people on my list. So I'm basically on there for church and radio purposes. Gotcha. Uh, and for me, I would give a couple different reasons to why I did that or I try to get off Twitter at times or whatever else. One, uh, I don't think that I'm a disciplined person when it comes to social media. I'm one of those people that when things are just, I have a little bit of downtime, all of a sudden I'm on Twitter and I'm like, what am I doing? Like, what, why did I even get back on? So, <laughs> Well, I didn't even pick up my phone right now. Right. And so that's an ongoing issue for me. So part of that, that's part of the reason. Yeah. But then Aubrey, we've talked about this before. I, I just, 
uh, found myself really um, discouraged by how by the Facebook, particularly the Facebook presence uh, of a lot of my people like in my church or friends, mm. or especially around uh, politics mm. around the election time. And I felt like I had a choice to either go, you know, what, you just need to put up with it or go, you know what, I'm just going to be off of this. I, I just don't want to have to deal with this anymore. And so for kind of my own soul a little bit, I said, yeah, I need to take a break from Facebook. Facebook was really the hardest for me to wrestle with because I felt like so many people that I'd invested time with or were close to were just quite frankly being mm. ridiculous on it. Mm. And I couldn't control that, right? Like I mm. couldn't control that. So Interesting. So I think I... I have taken social media Sabbaths in the past simply because I needed the time and the space to concentrate on something else. And you never regret it, right? Like it always feels so good to step away from social media, which is so crazy because we don't often do it. I think for me, the one I probably struggle with the most is Twitter because I feel like that's where the Christians are so bitter and so divisive and think they're better than everyone else. And they're constantly ripping apart the church to the point where I'm like, this doesn't look good to the watching world. Like, so I, that's the one I, I used to be really active on Twitter. And I would say I tend to go on and retweet things I like. I don't typically add to the Twitter conversation at all. Mm -hmm. I enjoy Instagram because I think it's just fun to have an Instagram wall and post pictures and like other people's pictures and that kind of thing. And then Facebook, I tend to post and then just leave. I don't spend Ah. a lot of time throughout the day on Facebook. Like I just, I just don't really engage for some of the reasons that you say. Um, Okay. So I bring this topic up, Brian, because Russell Moore, uh, who was the former, you know, SBC, leader. Uh, He's now over at Christianity Today. He was the president of Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the SBC. Um, He wrote an article about social media, and he basically said, like it or not, social media is taking a toll on your soul. Mm -hmm. And he's really unpacking a book that came out called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now, which was written by a Silicon Valley scientist and entrepreneur named Jason uh, Lanier. Might be saying his last name wrong, Lanier. But um, he basically is unpacking that book and talking about how one of the reasons why we should step back from social media is what we've talked about on the show, kind of the mob mentality that we become the use of his words is we become like a wolf pack Mm -hmm. when we're on social media. And instead of thinking through things as solitary, solitary wolves, we tend to get in that like mob mentality and just become obsessed with controlling who's in charge and the right thinking. And we kind of like, um, I don't know, the ugliest version of ourselves shows up online. You're exactly right. And it's just, you can either control your social media or your social media can control you. And some mm. people out there are going, oh, I don't get that. I'm never on it. I'm not speaking to you then. But there are some people uh, who you know what I mean. Like you can't help yourself and yeah. you are. Um, yeah, you just can't help yourself. And so you're making comments that you regret later. You're posting things that you regret or it's tearing at your soul. You're just getting angry at people. That's what mm. I was finding. I was just getting angry uh, and it wasn't good for me. So I was like, I got to I have to make a change here or else it's just going to continue having this effect on me. 
Yeah. Uh, You know, and this is kind of beside the point, but I think it's connected. I find, Brian, that I don't necessarily vent on social media, but I will write someone an email when I've had enough. Mm. And I don't think that's actually right either. Like, I need to go to my brother or sister and, like, have a coffee. And let's talk through things. Like, Mm. any sort of technology that you use for conflict can tend to dehumanize the other person and therefore it makes it that I think less godly and that less honoring honestly one of the things that Russell Moore says here is he says I'm not arguing that we should delete our social media accounts I am though wondering if you should spend some time asking whether your social media account is leading you to places you can't handle that's like what you just said Brian is it controlling you or are you controlling it do you find yourself given over more to anger or to anxiety or to envy, or to pack thinking, that's that Mm -hmm. mob mentality, then maybe it's time to step back or even leave for a while. After all, you weren't created for a hive or a pack. You were created for a church. Mm -hmm. And for that, you need more than a tribe. You need a soul. Your church needs that from you as well. All right, Brian. So just with the few minutes we have left, what advice do you give to people who feel like their social media is controlling them? Uh, Start to put up some parameters around it. Be very practical about it. Uh, Take a... Take stock of when you're on it. Are you on it? And I'm. This is more. You know. Sometimes we say we're we're speaking from a a, play, a level of strength, and other times we're not. Um. You know. I think you have to ask yourself: Am I looking at social media immediately when I wake up? Is it the last thing I'm looking mm. at when I'm going to bed? Is it making me angry? Is it mm. bad for my soul? If if the answer to those things are yes, then just put up some very practical things. Okay, I'm only going to look at social media at this time. I'm going to put my phone away from at this time. I'm going to do this. If if you're looking for some bigger reason, I don't think you're going to find it. I think you've got to get very practical and say, but first, Aubrey, you got to be convinced that it's having a negative effect on you. Like that's kind of the first thing that would need to happen. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I do sometimes think it's the perspective and the time away that helps you see, oh, uh, maybe it is having a negative effect on me and I didn't even realize it. And so mm-hmm. sometimes just putting it away to even gauge, am I okay or am I not okay? is a good way to determine that. Well, we hope that encourages you or discourages you. I don't know. We hope that uh, compels you to think about your social media use if you should step away for a time or if you have it in its proper place. All right. When we return, Brian and I are going to do one of our favorite things to do on a Friday evening, and that is a top five list. And we're going to do top five toys or gifts that you received growing up It's going to be a very good one. I cannot wait for us to get nostalgic. (laughs) You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And it is Friday. You know what that means. It is time for, yes, top five. We love our top five lists here at The Common Good. So much so, I will add, I don't know if we knew we would do this weekly, Brian. No, we did not. But this has become like a staple of our Friday evening show. Uh, And one of the reasons that we love our top five lists is because we love our top five theme song. (laughs) Let's hear it right now. Top five, top five, top five, top five, top five things with Brian and Aubrey. All right. Top five toys or gifts that we received growing up, uh, you know, at Christmas or any time of year, birthday, Easter, something like that. Okay. So top five gifts or toys from your childhood. Mm -hmm. Brian, why don't you go first? 
Yeah, I told you off air, I had a hard time with this one. I'm trying to stick to things that are toys, although one of these, I will grant you, my number three is not really a toy, but it played such an important role okay. in, my, in my childhood that I'm, okay. I, I, I made a little bit of a, of a change. Number five, I went with the Etch-A-Sketch. Oh, the Etch-A-Sketch. I love the Etch-A-Sketch. Yes, yes, me too. Me too. So I yes, yes I went with Etch-A-Sketch. Oh, you know what? That just gave me, you just gave me an honorable mention by saying that. Okay, well, I'll come back to that. Okay, the Etch-A-Sketch. And what did you, because I was terrible at the Etch-A-Sketch. Oh, I'm terrible. What did you, what terrible. you this like not, to do? It was just always fun the way like you could just kind of make, uh, yeah, you, and then you just erase it. And then you'd make yeah. more lines. And this, yeah. yeah, I was never one who was making like works of art on the Etch-A-Sketch. I just always yeah. liked it. You could sit in front of the TV and play mm-hmm. with the Etch-A-Sketch. There was something also very satisfying about just shaking it and mm-hmm. it all going away. I liked that yep. well. Okay. Yep. So I'm going to go. My number five is going to be a Cabbage Patch Kid. Everyone is special and has so much to give. Come and open your arms to a Cabbage Patch Kid. Which I'm guessing isn't on your list at all. But when I was young, my parents actually took me to the Cabbage Patch Kid orphanage where little Cabbage Patch Kids would be birthed out of cabbages. (laughs) And you could pick one and you got an adoption certificate. And it was very, very special. So uh, my number five is Cabbage Patch Kid. Okay, Brian. Yeah, the the Cabbage Patch Kid for for a girl's your age was kind of the pinnacle. Like that uh, was yeah, absolutely that was like a big <clears throat> deal. Not ever, and they though speaking of toy shortages, those were like fought over and off the that was shelves. The point. Yes, we're yes. definitely dating ourselves with this list, but that's okay. It's still fun and nostalgic. You never got to. You have three sons, so you never got to enjoy the uh, the American Girl store. Oh, I American never girl. did. I, I always felt very sad about that actually yeah you I, I wish i knew you earlier i would have let you buy my kids <laughs> uh number four for me transformers oh transformers more than meets the yes. eye yes yes, <laughs> yes that's good that's good. Transformers are cool. My husband really liked Transformers. Okay. Um, my number four is another sort of doll slash stuffed animal, and that would be pound puppies. Ah, yes. Uh, my grandparents made me a little dog house that went with it. And so we had we had pound puppies in their little house one Christmas, and that was one of the best Christmases I remember. That's awesome. Yep. Yeah, I do remember those. Yeah, I remember they were so cute. All right. My number three is the one that I'm telling you. excuse me, uh, is not really a toy, but it played such a big role in my childhood that it's going to fall under this category if you want to understand what my childhood was like. And that's baseball cards. Oh, baseball cards. That was big for Kevin, too. I love baseball cards, football cards, especially baseball cards. I passed them on to my son. My son is he kind of goes in and out of obsessions with baseball cards. It's kind of a thing we do together. So I love, love used to. Like the pinnacle was when you could get like your dad or your friend's dad would drop you off at the baseball card shop. And you're mm. like, this entire store is just baseball cards. Yes, that was uh, baseball cards for me. Baseball cards. Okay, that's very fun. Do you still have your baseball cards today? I do. Yes, wow. I do. Wow. Uh, Kevin still has his too. So that's pretty cool. Okay. My number three. This was hard for me to think of the order. I'm going to go a little bit older. Okay. So I, I think we were probably middle school at this age. 
maybe not, maybe not quite, maybe late elementary school, but that would be my first Nintendo mm. that came with Super Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt. Yes. That yes. was very fun. I would sneak out of my bedroom in the middle of the night and I would go turn it on and turn the TV down and play Super Mario Brothers. That was one of the coolest things I ever had. So for one of the first times, you and I are going to, we're going to have some <gasps> overlap here later wow! on. In my list, later on in my list. Uh, what are we up to? Number two. Number two. All right. Again, it's not exactly a toy, but it is. And it was, uh, again, played a big role, especially me and my good friend. We used to play this for hours outside. We would play wiffle ball. Hmm. Okay. Okay. That's fun. Very fun. You d- you hated wiffle ball. No, I did. Well, I just am not. I just wasn't athletic <laughs> athletic e. I was an athletic e, so therefore, uh, yeah. But I'm I'm proud of you. I'm glad for you to have you football football on your list. I'm not judging you for it at all. Um, okay, uh, let's see. Oh, I've got a number two, and then we'll do some honorable mentions. Okay, this one I loved, but it also gave me blisters. I don't know if you had this, uh, Brian, but the pogo ball. Do you remember that? I, I remember it. I did not have it. Uh, yeah. If you knew me as a kid, the pogo ball would not have gone well for me. Oh, really? Oh, why is that? Were you a clumsy kid or no. not good at jumping? More of a lack of balance, but also just uh, just my body type. You know, I was that short. You know, you yeah. know that kid that that you know people wouldn't call. They would call them husky. Like that was kind of my that was my lane. You know. Yes. And so, and so, therefore, the uh, things like the pogo ball <laughs> <laughs> were a little bit tricky. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But I understand the fun of it. I do. Yeah. And if you don't know, pogo ball was basically like a bouncy ball with a disc around it that you stood on. And it was sort of like a cool version of a pogo stick. But the problem was it would cause blisters because you were like holding it with the insides of your feet to stay balanced. So even though I really loved bouncing on it, I don't think it was a long lived toy in my life okay do you have any honorable mentions before we dive in i had two honorable mentions all right let's hear them uh one of them uh and this is very specific but i had i i loved uh wrestling figures like uh, oh hogan or or andre the giant and we'd have them and you'd make them wrestle each other uh that was fun and then also you can't have a toy list especially from our age without uh two more that i have hot wheels Hot Wheels. Oh, of course, of course. And G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe. That mm. is very like boy. Yes. yes. The very boy in our, our the 80s growing up. Okay. My my other honorable mentions are the light bright, which I really oh, like. Oh, yes. Remember? You'd yes. make designs with the light. That was really fun. And then uh, I don't know if you remember these, Brian, color forms. They were basically like um, a ca- cardboard backgrounds and little stickers that could be removed and you would just like set up a background scene and you could buy like yeah, a theme like elf color forms do you or- think i do you th- really think i did this no i don't think you did it i just <laughs> wondered if you remembered it at all oh this just made me think of one oh what, 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 let's hear it oh Oh, you got to help me out here. Kay. What were the things that you put in the oven? Shrinky dinks? Oh, shrinky dinks. Yes, <clears throat> shrinky dinks. Oh, that's a really good one. And as the name says, they would shrink in the yes. oven. Oh, the shrinky, yeah, shrinky dinks. dinks. That was, there was something very satisfying about shrinky dinks, too. And then you would hang them up in your window. Okay, yeah, Brian, are you part. ready? Number one. Uh, you mentioned it earlier, but I'm going to take a little different take on it. Okay. It's also the Nintendo. And nice. I love Super Mario Brothers. Mario. Uh, yep. Where, One, where do you live? Where are you from, Brian? Exactly, Mario. Exactly. Did okay. you ever win it? Did you ever win the game? 
Yes. Well, only through the cheats. Can't do the cheats. So uh, one of my best memories as a youth pastor, we got an old school Nintendo in our youth room in like 2000. And, you know, this is probably like 2005. And the kids are like, what's this? And I sat down. And within the first hour, had such memory of Super Mario Brothers that I won it. And they're all watching me like, whoa. And it was like my childhood. Oh, uh, I love that. But mine specifically, I can vividly remember getting this for Christmas and my brother and I staying up really late on Christmas Eve because we would open some gifts on Christmas Eve yeah. uh, with family, getting up really or staying up really late to play Tecmo Bowl. What's, I don't know what that is. Ask your husband about Tecmo Bowl with Nintendo. It's football. And uh, it was the NFL game, and it was like the first of its kind, and it was awesome. So T-E-C-M-O, Tecmo Bowl. Tecmo Bowl. Okay. That's right, I will for have Nintendo. to list that up. Okay, so, Tecmo Bowl for Nintendo. That's right. That's my number one. All right. And my number one, this was very hard. This might, I hope it doesn't feel anticlimactic, but I loved getting fancy paper dolls. And in particular, my mom gifted me with Princess Diana paper dolls, and they were in a very nice book, and they were very fancy. I never even used them. That's how fancy they were. I'm kind of a big deal. Really? I loved, loved fancy paper dolls. I have to give you that because that's like the equivalent of my baseball cards. Yeah, I, that's fair. I think that is that is fair. Right, that like one worked collector's out well. item. Yeah. All right. Well, if we missed anything or if there's something you love from your childhood, be sure to let us know on social media. Coming up next, we're going to be talking about some really fun news stories when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're sending you home this evening with some good news. You shared a story about a guy who won a candy factory. I want to hear this. This is a weird story. It's so fun. It's different than like the normal Good News Network stories that we do and we will get yeah. into. But yeah, the title uh, from Indiana just says, Man Wins Candy Factory After Finding Indiana's Golden Ticket. What? For over three months, a small necklace with a golden ticket attached lay buried in the ground at Highland Park, uh, waiting to be found. A guy named Andrew Moss, a 39-year-old father from Colorado, he did that. He walked in and he dug it up. Come on. And with that, he became the new owner of a 4,000-square-foot candy factory in (laughs) Florida. So the story just goes, there was a big uh, national scavenger hunt orchestrated by David Klein. He's known as Candyman, uh, in which people had to solve. It was like Willy Wonka. It was That's a Willy Wonka. I was just Wonka thinking. It's inspired. like real life with yeah. Winky Wonka. Willy, Willy Wonka. Wonka. Will you say Winky Wonka? I don't know what I just said. <laughs> move on, move on. on. A, they went on a treasure hunt and th- had, they had to solve riddles and it went across the country and it oh. ended up there in Indiana and this guy won and now he wins his candy factory. The Come final on. Isn't that crazy? Yes, that's crazy. What I want to know is like, is he is he burdened or is he happy about this? I would think he's happy. Yes, yes. Oh, that is so fun. Well, congratulations, the new Candyman. Um, okay, Brian. So speaking of Good News Network, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to read you a story. You ready I'm for ready. this? Yep. Okay. You know how the, there's always those cute pictures of like the lion 
with the lamb, right? And they're best friends. It's biblical. Yes. Right? Yeah, it's biblical. Well, here's a story of a Doberman dog who nurses a tiny abandoned kitten along with her pups. You can look at the pictures on goodnewsnetwork.org. But um, it's a story of a New York town. Brian, do you know this town, Geneseo? Uh, I do not. No. Okay. Well, you're from New Jersey, so you're supposed to know all these things, but that's all right. Uh, in in New York, a Doberman pincher named Ruby, who was nursing six of her own puppies at the time, had no qualms about adding a tiny newborn kitten who was abandoned. And now this little infant kitten is a part of this family. Is that so cute? That is cute. And yeah. Ah, nature. 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 So sweet. All right, next one. And we talked about crying earlier. This is a tearjerker. I'm warning you in advance. Oh, no. Okay. Teen who lost his gaming partner when his dad died brings the power of play and connections to kids facing illness. As a little boy, Nick Priest loved playing video games with his dad, who was a whiz at all things tech and gaming. They started off with Nick holding a controller and pretending to play and moved on to Lego games and Mario Galaxy. Joe, his dad, was diagnosed with cancer when Nick was three, and after that, they played more than ever. The last time he made it down to the basement for gaming, Joe was so weak that he couldn't even walk. He had to go down the stairs on his rear end, but it was worth it Mm. for the pair had a blast. When he passed away, Nick was just six, but the boy didn't just lose his dad. He lost his gaming partner. When friends or families would visit it to, to play games, it took his mind off his sadness. Nick told his mom, no kid should ever be without someone to play video games with. That's when the power of play was born. Now a junior in high school, uh, Nick rallies teens to bring the power of play, particularly video games, to kids who are affected by cancer or other illnesses. And it goes Mm -hmm. on to say how much money he's raised, how they do this. Uh, and, and you go into hospitals or finding ways for volunteers to play with kids online. Wow. What a cool story. He took his own tragedy uh, yeah. and, you know, it doesn't replace his dad. It doesn't make it any better. Not. But what it does is it, it brings some good to kids then that so desperately need it. So oh. what a cool story. Oh, I love that. Mm. I love that. And just the popularity of gaming in this day and age to use it for such a good cause is really really that's i love that that is so powerful all right well here's another tearjerker sixth grade student um from poland who has down syndrome created a painting for the queen of england she loves the royal family so she uh, wrote a letter and sent off her painting to the queen of england here's what the letter said your majesty my name is Vanessa, and i'm 12 years old i live in poland in the small town of lipka She says, I have wonderful teachers, many friends. She talks about her family. And then she says, I am a person with a disability and Down syndrome. Nevertheless, I paint pictures. I would like to give you one of them, Your Majesty. The title of this painting is Earth Greetings from Poland. You can look at the picture on goodnewsnetwork.org or you can find it on Facebook as well. But then here's the incredible thing. On September 6th, just a couple weeks ago, she received a reply from the royal court. Oh, that's awesome. Here's what it says. The queen's response dictated by an assistant spoke of how touched she was with the effort she put into the painting, describing it as splendid. The letter said her majesty was thankful to the 12-year-old for her thoughtfulness 
for taking the time to write and she wished her success in the future. And then um, there were pictures of the reply with the words, dreams are made to be fulfilled. Today, I got my letter from Queen Elizabeth and it's a Aww. picture of the girl holding the <laughs> painting and her letter. I just think that is so awesome. That's awesome. All right, here's my last one. Okay. Uh, man decides to give bone marrow to soothe his depression. Not only did he her cancer go into remission, but her mm. MS as well. <gasps> what? Rather than give into depression, one man chose to fight back in a way that not only changed his life for the better, but it gave a total stranger a second chance as well. Mm. Gage Tappy had recently moved to Idaho and had part-time custody of one of his kids. Alone and isolated, he admits he was at an all-time low. Looking for something to help him cope with his sadness and feel more connected, uh, Tappy signed up as a donor with the National Bone Marrow Registry. I felt like my life wasn't worth very much, so I hope that I gave myself a chance to put some value to my own life by trying to help somebody extend theirs and continuing to stay on the list. You have to be alive to do that. <clears throat> it gave me a sense of value to myself that I previously didn't have. Several months later, Tappy got a call to let him know he'd been identified as a match. Tappy says since he was raised to help others in need in any way, big or small, he just needed to know where and when his marrow would be harvested for the transplant. Mm. The donation was made anonymously. And so it goes on later on in the story. It tells us uh, that the person who got it, uh, Tia Jensen, she had been diagnosed with leukemia in 2018, and she'd already been dealing with the effects of multiple sclerosis for two decades. After the bone marrow transplant, they both went away. No it way. cured them both. Uh, Come or, on. Or at least, uh, I should say, it at least put, yeah, her MS into remission. I guess doctors wow. don't want to say you're cured. Sure. But isn't that unbelievable? Somebody looking for some purpose does this and it brings this sort of healing. Oh, I think that is absolutely incredible. This is why we love these stories, because you see even people who may not even realize it, what God is doing through these acts of selflessness. I love it. Love it. Love it. What a good what a good news story for us, Brian. Thanks for sharing that. And thanks, everybody, for joining us today. We'll be back on Monday from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.